So I'm about to try something um, that I have not done before. So everybody buckle up, all right? Here we go. Um, I need a, a volunteer, preferably someone who does not wear glasses and um, is kind of sturdy. They should bump into something, something. All right, Nate, great, thanks for volunteering, come here. All right, so here's a, not, not a big deal, right? I'm just gonna ask you to read some scripture, okay? But you gotta, these are my glasses, you need to put those on. Wow. Nice, okay, wait, so I need you to make your way to the back table and find me a Bible, and then find Luke 16 for me, all right? Yeah, somebody might want to spot him. Thank you, Rudy. Nate, come on, buddy, we don't have all day. All right, you know what? That's Nate. Go ahead, take the glasses off. Come on up. So, yes, I am. Um, I have, I am wicked, wicked nearsighted, and my lenses are super, super corrective. I wear, um, I wear contacts the majority of the time. Nate, was that, um, what, when you put those on, was that easy to? What, what happened? From right here, you couldn't, okay. And then stepping down, was that a little unsettling? Yeah, it felt like it was a lot slower than it should. Okay, and then how about trying to read? I couldn't see it anymore. Okay, how's your head? You need an aspirin or Tylenol or something? Okay, all right. Thank you for doing that, buddy, I appreciate it. So um, those lenses allow me to see everything that I need to see. They weren't made for Nathan, so it completely messed up his line of vision and everything and how he saw everything. A few weeks ago, um, John gave us this analogy of the way we approach life. Our worldview is like a pair of lenses that we put on. And we've been suggesting to you throughout the course of the series on the problem of God that the single most clarifying lens that exists is the God of the Bible. And um, he gives us that lens so we can see clearly because the other lenses, the lens of self, the lens of like what other people think, what other people think, those lenses are blurry and they can be confusing and they can lead to hurt and ultimately they lead to death and to destruction. And the lens of the God of the Bible brings joy and peace and ultimately brings eternal life. Each one of us, each one of us sitting here, whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, was created on purpose and for a purpose. And that purpose was to glorify God in everything that we do. And when we step into relationship with Jesus, we step into that purpose. That's our purpose, that's, that's why, why God made us. We step into eternal life here and now as he walks with us and he changes us and he shapes us into the people that he created us to be. We were also created for eternity. When God had us in mind, when he dreamt us up a long time ago, he had us in mind for an eternity, and he wants that eternity to be with him. And when we choose to follow Jesus, that's what we step into, that eternal life with him. Here's the thing of it, though. If we choose other than him as we walk this earth, he won't override that choice. 
As a matter of fact, the Bible reveals to us that he gives us over to those choices. And that, unfortunately, those, the consequences of those choices are very real. And they affect us in very real ways. Not just in this life, but in the life to come. If we choose other than God in this life, that's what he allows in the next life. That separation from God is called hell. That's the problem of God that we attempt to tackle this morning, this idea of the concept of hell. And I would, um, I would be remiss if I did not tell you that covering this, this topic like stresses me out. Um, it, it, it creates, uh, I don't know, I've, I've talked about it before, and I've tried to weasel my way out of, of talking about it again, but when, when God says go, we go, right? So, um, and it's not just me. You know, the, the, the people um, who spend their life studying the Bible feel the same way. And the people who are in the Bible and God himself feels the same way. There is no joy in the idea of hell. This is Charles Spurgeon, famous theologian. Beloved, these are such weighty things that while I dwell upon them, I feel far more inclined to sit down and weep than to stand up and speak to you from a message he gave called the final separation. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the better part of the New Testament, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. Rather than think about people being in hell, Paul would rather take that on himself because it's such a weighty, such a weighty thing. Jesus himself, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent, sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus doesn't want to see anybody in hell. Jesus, virgin birth, his perfect life, his, his innocent death, his triumphant resurrection, and the, his return that we all anxiously await for that final that final victory was all about one thing. It was about bringing God glory. It was about shining a greater light on God. It was about increasing our ability to see God and, and focus upon him. And if, um, as Pastor John Piper says, if God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him, then maybe the single greatest thing that Jesus did to bring God glory was his death on the cross and keeping people out of hell. So as we, as we move forward in, in this conversation, I think we need to start with how God himself feels about the concept of eternity and what his hopes are for us. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. God, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, Similarly, in 2 Peter, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand his slowness. He's talking about his return. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is holding off on the return of Jesus so as many people as possible can spend eternity with him. As we contemplate this weighty subject and other weighty matters of, of faith, the most clarifying lens with, through which we can look is that of God's perfect character. And um, I would implore you to, 
to just try to push out whatever preconceived notions you might have of God, whatever um, images of parental figures you have that get associated with God, whatever images the media might have put into your mind around the, the images of God, the God of the Bible is perfect in every single facet of his character, and that is so hard for us to get our brains around because we don't know anyone else like that. And I want to point out four different ways. He's, like I said, every facet of his character, he's perfect, but as we think about the idea of hell, I want you to think about him being perfect in these four areas. He's perfectly holy. He is without blemish, completely pure, innocent, nothing wrong from before the beginning of time on into eternity. He is perfectly loving. Everything that he does is for his glory and for our best interest. There's not a single thing that happens that's outside of those two things. Good, bad, and indifferent. And he's in control of all of them. And because he's for us, right, we talked about this in Easter and Palm Sunday, he went to the cross and he died that horrible death. That perfect selfless love is for us. He's perfectly just, right? And both in terms of making sure those who deserve rewards get rewards and those who are deserving of punishment get punishment. And one of the big stumbling blocks when it comes to the idea of hell is this, you know, people get caught up in all these different variables. Well, you know, what about, what about you know, little babies who, who, who pass away? What about people who've never heard of Jesus? What about this? What, here's the thing, folks. God is perfectly just. Whatever variable you can think up with, think up, he's got it. He's already thought about it. He's already thought it through, and he knows how to handle it. And that ties into the last one, because he's not, he knows everything. Like I said, so, so very hard for us to get our mind around the idea that God is perfect in every facet of his character. So when it comes to something that's so challenging, like the idea of hell, we need to look at it through the lens of this perfect God who does not make mistakes, who does not get surprised, and who is absolutely, absolutely for us. So we have a perfect God. Why, why would he create a place like hell? And, and in order to understand that, um, we have to get a better understanding of what, what hell actually, actually is. Uh, one scholar suggests that hell is not suggest from the Bible reading. He, he shares with us that uh, hell is separation from God, banishment from God. We're apart from him forever. Jesus' own words in the gospel, um, it's an eternity, it's desolation, it's isolation, it's destruction, and it's punishment. Um, I should point out, like, when I, when I do messages like this, all this stuff is in the pages of scripture, and there's a ton of scriptural references. If you go to crossroadct.info, the very first thing you're going to see is the notes from today's service, and there's a link that you can click on that, and every single one of these scripture passages that I'm referencing is listed in there, so you can follow along. You click on that, and it'll bring them all up at, um, at one time. So hell is eternal, um, separation from God, isolation, destruction, punishment. Hell is the absence of all common grace. Common grace are those things that we enjoy, right? Air we breathe, the water we drink, laughter, beauty, a medium rare steak, right? All of those things are gifts of God. 
the things that we take for granted, things that we think we control in hell, none of that stuff is present. Hell was created, heaven was created for God to spend eternity with man, paradise. Hell was created for Satan and for demons. Not, I mean, the idea of, of spiritual things and spiritual warfare and, and somebody like Satan existing, I'm not sure where everybody is on that, but from my study, from what I've learned and what the Bible teaches, he's very real. And God has a place for him, and it's called hell. And all of the, the, um, the spiritual be beings that chose to follow him, that's what it was created for. And Satan doesn't rule there, right? It's not like his playground. He's a resident just like anybody else. There are rules and there are consequences. It is not a drunken orgy on a bed of stolen money. It is not what you see in Renaissance art, and it is not the comics of Matt Groening, right? The Life and Hell comic strip. What I just described to you is a biblical picture based on the words of Jesus and the other biblical authors of what hell is like. There's lots of uh, metaphorical language in there about flames and worms that are never, their appetite is never satisfied. Um, and from, from studies and from scholars, we learn that that's probably metaphorical in nature, but that does not make it any less horrible. So we have this perfect God of the universe. We have a hell that is very real, very terrible, and um, it leads us to, uh, well, why? What, what's the deal? Why, how do we, so we end up with these objections, these, these concerns, these problems that, that we, need to, we need to wrestle through. And they're probably countless, but I'm gonna try to address three of them relatively, relatively quickly. Um, just the, the flat out idea, is that coming up? There we go. The idea of hell is repulsive. That there would be this terrible place that people would spend eternity in, separated from God, separated from, from each other. Mark Clark, the author of The Problem of God, which we're basing this series loosely on, um, he would suggest to us, while we find those of us in the, this modern Western world find this idea difficult and possibly repulsive, there are parts of the world where if God did not judge the evil that took place, people would think him no God at all. People would think him not loving. People would think him not caring. We live in a very protected world here in, in America. So we're free from, from having to think about those things. I mean, unfortunately, more and more things just seem to keep happening. A uh, Yale professor, a guy by the name of Miroslav Volf, great name, right? Miroslav Volf. Um, he lived through the atrocities that happened in Croatia. He wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace, and he talks about this idea of how those of us in the Western world, um, what that does to our, to our mindset. I want to read you this quote. It takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis of God's refusal to judge, and a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. He saw family members murdered, he saw family members raped, he lived through a bloody civil war, and the, the folks that he was surrounded by look to God for an, ultimate, um, for an ultimate reconciling of those things that happened in their lives, for them to make some, some kind of sense. The other thing that um, gets suggested is that this culture is not the only culture in the world. 
nor is it an all-knowing culture, right? So again, Miroslav Wolf, when people suggest that, um, how, you know, how could a, a, a loving God just do, just do this? He thinks a counter question is, is appropriate. Is it not a bit arrogant to presume that our contemporary sensibilities about what is compatible with God's love are so much healthier than those of the people of God throughout the whole history of Judaism and Christianity? It's, a, it's an absolutely challenging idea, but these, the, to try to remove ourselves from our current context and try to think about life and all of its challenges, tragedies, the hard things that face us, and the fact that God is capable, because of his perfection, of dealing with them in an ultimate, in an ultimate way. Just to kind of wrap that piece up, our culture is not the only culture, nor is it an all-knowing culture. A loving God would not send people to hell. So I'm just going to, there's four different quotes from four different well-renowned scholars, and I'm just going to, um, I'm just going to read you. Basically, their point is, is that people, we make decisions in this life that affect our eternity. From C.S. Lewis, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. From G.K. Chesterton, hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human choice. Tim Keller, hell is one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. And finally, from Mark Clark, hell is the outworking of our choice to experience total autonomy from God. Hell as one's final destination is a choice that we make which God allows. Last one. Hell is an extreme overreaction it's an eternity. That's a long time. It sounds pretty terrible. It's a pretty severe, pretty severe punishment. And again, from Mark Clark's book, he suggests a couple of different things. When people in our society commit a crime and they're sentenced, their sentencing is not relative to how long it takes them to commit a crime. Right? So this is, he's thinking about the idea of, of an eternal punishment. If it takes somebody six seconds to commit a murder, they're not going to get sent to jail for six seconds. They're going to get sent to jail for life. Or in some states, capital punishment is going to be involved. Right? The, the amount of time that it takes to commit a sin, to make a bad choice, to make a series of bad choices, to not choose Jesus, does not affect eternity. The other, um, the other thing about that is the offended person, right? So when a judge is making a sentencing decision, he's taking lots of things into consideration. One of the things that he takes into account is the offended person. If two guys get in a, in a bar fight and unfortunately one of them dies as a result, the sentencing that happens there is gonna be different than if a 25-year-old man does something horrible to a little kid. When we think about the idea of, of wrong that is done to God, I think we often underestimate the idea of this thing called sin. We are 
finite beings. God created us. We have a start point. He did create us for eternity, but our existence here will end. So how we struggle with the fact that how in this finite life, how can the things that we do have an eternal, infinite impact? When we go against God, when we choose other than what God would have for us, we are a finite being committing what we would assume to be a finite offense against an infinite being. That makes that offense infinitely offensive. Because God is perfect, because he is infinite, because he is eternal, no matter the nature of the wrong, when we offend him, it has eternal consequences. That's why I just keep, I keep banging on this, banging on this, banging on this. We have got to understand the nature of God's perfect character. It's, it's critical to, to understanding this. When it comes to the concept of hell, we need to view hell through the lens of the God, or through the lens of God, not God through the lens of hell. Most importantly, I want to draw our attention to the words of, of Jesus himself and the things that, that he said about hell. I'm going um, to read to you that passage that Nathan attempted to, to read for us in, uh, in Luke chapter 16. Um, these are Scott Hubner's reading glasses. He was kind enough to let me borrow, so I promised him I would try to not stretch them out. Um, this is Luke chapter 16, and this is Jesus telling the story, uh, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and had fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away from him with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Right, so common grace. There's no water there. He wants, to, he wants something to drink because it's... He's so, he's so uncomfortable. What's really interesting is he doesn't ask to be removed from hell. He's, he's not ready to change his mind, right? When, when we cross over into the next life, our mindset doesn't change. We chose to not follow God in this life. It's not going to change in the next life. He wanted Lazarus, the poor guy who sat at his gate and ate crumbs off of his table, to come serve him still. He was still looking out for himself at the, at the expense of, of others. Oops. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm that has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them, sorry, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. 
He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Um, again, interesting to know that Father Abraham, the representative of, of heaven, of God, refers to the man in hell as son. It's a term of affection. Right? Even across that separation, even across the gap that exists there, God and the, the community of heaven still looks at those people with love through that, that separation. So Jesus was about keeping the population of hell to an absolute, to an absolute minimum. And I think, so as we talk about hell, right, we, we get concerned about those people who, um, who we, we would deem far, far from God. Um, and I am, I'm 100% confident in God's ability to make those decisions based on the choices that we make in, in this life. And I'm also 100% confident that when I get to heaven, I'm going to be surprised at who I see there and who I don't. And that's because God's character is perfect and, and mine, mine is not. Jesus' words, he talked about hell more than anybody else. Hell, God's wrath, judgment, more than any other biblical um, person. About 13% of what, of what Jesus said had to do with those ideas of hell and judgment. <clears throat> as, as much as I could figure, all of those conversations were with church people. They were with his disciples, they were with his followers, they were with the religious leaders. And he had really direct, sometimes harsh words to say to them, and he was warning them about bringing God's judgment on them for becoming obstacles to people finding Jesus. Instead of pointing to Jesus, they would be pointing people to hell. When he encountered what um, the Bible often refers to as sinners and tax collectors, people far from God, people whose society pushed to the edges, pushed to the margins. What did he do? He went to them. He met them where they were. He spoke words of grace and truth to them. The woman caught in adultery, he protected her. He physically protected her. He protected her dignity. But he also told her, hey, you know what? I'm not going to condemn you, but you got you to gotta stop. The woman at the well, the same thing. He met her where she was at. Nicodemus went to his house for dinner. Matthew, the tax collector, went to his house for dinner. Jesus goes out of his way time and time again throughout his life to go to those people that are far from him. And to the people who he's drawn near, he has conversations with them about hypocrisy and about how you treat children and about living in known ongoing sin, choosing to do what you know God would rather have you not do. Does that list sound familiar? When we talk to our friends and family about things that keep them from Christianity, hypocrisy, abuse, abuse, uh, you know, church abuse, and people in the church doing things, saying one thing and, and doing another. Jesus was teaching his followers and his disciples and the church people of the day Listen, I have a mission, and my mission is to keep the population of hell to the bare minimum. And I want you guys on board with that mission. I don't want you to get in the way. 
and he was harsh and he was he was direct with them jesus lived this perfect life and then he died this this tragic violent death in doing that he beat hell and because of that life that he lived in perfect innocence he was able to rise from the grave three days later and when we come to him and we choose him we step in to that eternal life we saw him beat death so we know that it's possible and we're told in the pages of scripture that it's possible through him but here's the reminder he won't make that choice for us he won't force us into that choice it's up to us to choose to follow him, to point others to him, to help others make that choice. We make the choices about what we do in this life. God makes the decisions about what happens in the next life. I want to leave you with a, a quote from, from C.S. Lewis. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give him a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering miraculous help. But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. They won't allow themselves to be forgiven. They won't accept that forgiveness. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. In a way that only Jesus could, he did everything possible to keep as many people as possible from hell when it comes to the idea of hell sorry um, we have got to view in order to understand this difficult difficult heavy idea it's only through the lens of God that we can begin to understand the lens of a perfect God of the Bible that we can begin to make sense of this so um, I would encourage you to, we have those question cards, and um, I would encourage you, if you have questions about this, to write down your thoughts, to write down your questions, submit them to, to us, and then we are going to do um, a ser series or service at the end of the series uh, and handle, handle those questions. So I'm sure there's something that's, that's come to mind around, around this topic, so please take advantage of that. Uh, I'm going to pray for us. The band's going to make their way up here, and we're going to finish up with this song. Father God, uh, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your perfect character. We thank you um, that you love us like no one else could. We thank you for uh, your holiness, your innocence, your purity. We thank you for your justice, that one day all wrongs will be righted. We thank you that um, there are rewards in heaven for those who choose you for the things done in, in this life. And we thank you that you're the one that makes those decisions. We don't have to. We shouldn't try to. God, we ask that um, we would be the kind of people who point people towards you, that we would not uh, get in the way. God, we pray against um, just our natural inclinations to say one thing and to do another. And, and just we get so caught up in the things of this life, God, and so distracted. Help us to, to focus on you. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you and your example, your perfect, loving example. 
so that we might join you in your fight. We might join you in your journeys to go and to meet people where they are and to help them find you. God, we ask that as we approach this topic, as we approach other difficult things, that you would allow us to see them through your perfect character. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you. Amen.